When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Welcome to Made by Women, a new podcast by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. At a moment when businesses face some of the biggest challenges in recent history, we bring you inspiring stories, practical insights, and shared learnings to help you successfully navigate in today's environment. Every Thursday, Made by Women will showcase the experiences of legendary women entrepreneurs, fierce up-and-comers, and everyday women who found success their own way. Consider this your real-world MBA, designed for the new now. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and thanks so much for joining us today. Kay Koplovitz is a television pioneer who has shaped the way we live and watch TV for decades. The eventual founder chair and CEO of USA Network, Kay became enamored with satellites as a University of Wisconsin student. Inspired by the work of science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, in 1977, Kay launched one of the first satellite-delivered basic cable networks, Madison Square Garden Sports Network, which later became USA Network. With that launch, Kay became the first female network president in television history. Kay is the visionary who created the dual revenue stream of licensing and advertising, which networks still follow to this day. And after building and running the network for over 20 years, Kay helped sell USA Network for $4.5 billion. One of the most influential people in entertainment, Kay Koplowitz today is sharing her unmatched knowledge with other women entrepreneurs through two organizations that she has co-founded. Springboard Enterprises, and Springboard Growth Capital. Enjoy my conversation with Kay Koplovitz. So Kay, thanks so much for joining us. It's lovely to join you, Kim. Thank you so much. Kay, obviously your career has changed the landscape for so many things, whether it's cable television, the way we think about entertainment, women's entrepreneurship. Uh, you have been a leader in so many areas, and we're so pleased that you're here to talk to us today. It seems that this goes way back and that you learned the art of negotiation at a very young age, perhaps kindergarten. Is that right? 
Yes, it is. Actually, I was uh, five years old at the time. I was uh, in my second year of kindergarten where I, uh, my parents and I were living and uh, my dad had built a new house in the next town and it was about Christmas time and he said, well, we're moving to our new house. And I said to my dad, well, I, I really can't move now. What do you mean you can't move now? We're moving. You're moving with us. Well, I said, I, I really can't move, Dad. It's uh, I, you know something I've got to do. And he said, well, what do you got to do? And I said, I've got to graduate from my kindergarten class. <laughs> and he looked at me like, here she goes again. And I, he said, well, well how are you going to do that? You're moving. And I said to him, well, Dad, I, you have to raise my allowance by 50 cents a week so I can take the bus to the next town and go to kindergarten class and graduate with Mrs. Washburn's kindergarten class. That's what I want to do. And he looked at me and he went, hmm, okay, but don't you ever ask your mother for a ride. We're not going to take you, no matter how cold it is. It was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, cold winters. And I said, nope, never going to ask for a ride, never going to ask for any help. Just give me my 50 cents a week and I'll take care of it. <laughs> and that's how I won my first negotiation. <laughs> Well, that was really the beginning of something extraordinary. The writing was on the wall, as they say. So from that point on, you were sort of a girl on a mission. And I'm going to bring you forward to college when you became fascinated by the potential of satellites. How did that come to be? I was uh, between my junior and senior year at the University of Wisconsin at the time, and I had been working my way through school, working lots of jobs, and I thought, I've got to get out of Wisconsin, see something about the world, and I decided to go off to Europe with my backpack and $5 a day and see what was happening and give myself a little bit of a break, and I was in London at the time, and I saw, walking around, I saw this poster for a lecture being given on satellites, and I thought, wow. That could really be interesting. I think I'll go in there and listen to this lecture, which I did. And the lecture was talking about the power of geosynchronous orbiting satellites, which had just been launched um, in the previous year. And he was talking about how powerful they were. And you only needed three of them to connect people all around the globe. And furthermore, they couldn't be jammed. We were in the time of the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union at that point in time, and also China. Uh, and he was saying that this was a way to communicate with people around the globe. I just thought the message was so powerful that it was an idea that would never let me go. And this lecturer was Arthur C. Clarke, a renowned science fiction writer, but also a well-grounded scientist. And he was talking uh, to the class about geosynchronous orbiting satellites, which we take for granted today, but just had been launched at that point in time. That was, it just gripped me as an unbelievably powerful idea, an idea that would never let me go. And I went on to pursue the idea, but went to graduate school, wrote my master's thesis on satellite technologies, and I think the potential impact it would have on the communication structure, which of course it has. Well, that another amazing moment and was a forecast of what was to happen. And from there, you write your thesis and you get into television and you get involved in the legendary Thrilla in Manila championship boxing fight. Can you tell us why this was a pivotal moment for you? 
Sure. Uh, at that point, in between, I had worked at the Communications Satellite Corporation, so I really worked in you know bringing satellites into the communication here in the United States. And at that time, in nineteen, now we're in nineteen seventy-five, and there are cable systems starting to grow around the country, but they really didn't have a way of connecting efficiently. So HBO is in its really early stages; it would send tapes around and. They arrive at cable systems that are damaged or torn. It wasn't a really good way of distributing a signal. And along came the opportunity with the Thriller from Manila in September 30th, 1975. HBO actually was a client of mine. They brought back to Vero Beach, Florida, uh, and I was a representative for them. And we brought that signal via geosynchronous orbiting satellites, 90,000 miles around the globe, live from Manila into Vero Beach, Florida, and showed the industry and members of Congress that satellites could be used for commercial purposes. Up to that time, they had not been used for commercial purposes in this way. And that was the night that changed the course of television history and the night that launched my career uh, to launch USA Network. So coming out of that one incredible championship boxing fight, you change the trajectory of cable television and you go on to launch the first satellite delivered basic cable network, which was then called Madison Square Garden Sports Network and later became USA Network. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Let me just say that, yes, the launch was with Madison Square Garden. It was the Madison Square Garden Sports Network. I actually brought all the professional sports to cable before ESPN. So Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, uh, Augusta National Golf Tournament, the U.S. Open Tennis, the list goes on and on. Um, And so we broke open a window when sports at that time was really a weekend event. Uh, It was, uh, you know, the game of the week in baseball. It was uh, wide world sports on the weekend and uh, then Monday night football. And that was it. And, And I said, why not every night? Sports are played every night. Every night. So I went after every major league sport, brought them all to cable. So broke open that window in the sports arena um, and went on afterwards, renaming the network USA Network and brought in entertainment and broke open many entertainment windows for the cable industry. So I plowed a lot of ground for the industry, but it was certainly a lot of fun doing it. And there was something very unique about USA Network in that you changed the way the business model operated. How did that come into being? Yes, I, uh, at television at the time was operated totally on advertising revenue. Starting up a, a nascent network, uh, there was not enough distribution to rely on. We didn't have advertising revenue to start with. Maybe 2% of the revenue came out of advertising when we started um, with pilot programs with advertisers like Bristol Myers. But it really, uh, you needed to get the distribution. So licensing was what I changed. In network television, the the networks paid the TV stations to carry their signal. I reversed the process. And in cable, the cable operators paid the programmer to get the programming. So we had to reverse the model. Really interesting. And that really changed the course of the way we think about cable TV today. What was one of the biggest obstacles you faced in building your business? When I was building USA Network, it really was a different time, sort of a development of, of businesses, certainly in the cable industry. And being the first one out there launching a network, I really had to look for ways to get into the business. 
there were a lot of contracts in place, uh, access to programming that I wanted to license and so forth. And I had to really create all these special windows and a, a strategy for not only bringing all the sports, major sports to cable before ESPN was my idea. I went out and did that. Uh, but trying to get into the entertainment networks was very, very different. Trying to license popular programming from broadcast networks. There were windows that I had to really get into, but that really wasn't the hardest thing for me. I'll tell you what it was back then. Women just weren't allowed a lot of places. Weren't allowed to go to golf clubs and play golf with the guys. Weren't allowed to go into certain parts of restaurants. I want to give you an example that people will understand. It happens to be at Augusta National where the Masters Golf Tournament is played. And in 1982, I was able to license the rights to carry the Masters on Thursday and Friday. I was always trying to get more sports during the week. And I worked with CBS that had the rights on the weekend. So I was there at the club on the very first uh, week of play. And there on Thursday, which was the traditional day for the media lunch. And we were standing outside the clubhouse chatting Uh, And I was chatting with Horde Harden, who was the chairman at the time. And there were about 14 of us. uh, And the others were all a bunch of guys from CBS and TBS from Japan. And uh, we're having a nice time. And Horde says, oh, well, let's go. Let's go to lunch. Time to go to lunch. So we go into the clubhouse and we're going up the stairs. And Horde is leading the way. I'm walking up the stairs with him. We get to the top of the stairs. And he turns around and he looks at me and he said, uh, okay, uh, we don't allow women on the second floor. And I said to him, well, Horde, what are we going to do about that? That's when women couldn't go to the men's lunching room on the second floor. So what did we do? We turned around and went down to the trophy room to have lunch where we proceeded to have lunch for the next 10 years until the second floor was opened to women. So it just is illustrative of some of the barriers that I really had to face in building out the network. And it didn't really have so much to do with the network. It had a lot to do with the culture. And so that wasn't the only time. I mean, there were a number of times that I went to meetings in different cities around the country. The meetings were scheduled at eating clubs that were men-only eating clubs. Or I would be invited to an event to participate in an event, uh, and I would go to the event and a golf tournament, for example, or a golf outing of some sort, and the same thing would happen. So women were excluded from a lot of the places that men congregated to do business. And that probably, culturally speaking, was one of the hardest things to overcome. But Undaunted, I persisted. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Uh, things have somewhat changed. Obviously, there's other barriers today, but that's a straightforward barrier, not being able to be there. How did they respond? Did people understand you? And how did they respond to you in this? People had to change. As I illustrated with the story about Augusta, they had to change. They had to do something differently because there I was to do business with them. And what were they going to do? Lock me out of the meeting that I was there to do business? It, it uh that they didn't do that. They generally thought of something else, you know, that they would do or they would go someplace else or to try oftentimes to be accommodating. But you knew 
that when you were personally standing there, that that cultural habits persisted for a long time. And that for most women, they were really frozen out. And that is a difficult thing to overcome, actually. It's a cultural issue. You must have had this incredible ability to articulate your vision because when you're building new and bringing people along, that's always very difficult. And it seemed that many people showed up once you laid it out. I think there's one night where Bob, it clicked for him and basically said something like, tonight your dream comes true. Did I, did I get that right? You got it right. It was September 30th, 1975. The Thriller from Manila it was his cable system. We were walking back to the hotel and he said, okay, tonight your dream comes true. And, and indeed it did. Wow. And he was the one that I was working with and partnered with to launch Madison Square Garden and then became USA Network. So you ran USA Network for 21 years. In the process somewhere, you launched the Sci-Fi Channel. How did that come to be? Well, I was looking for, I had really tried to launch a couple other networks. And at that point in time, Early on, five years after we launched originally, the owners of the company, Bob Rosencrantz's company, was in a hostile takeover bid, and he wanted to get some money out. So Universal and Paramount, along with Time, Inc., bought into the company. And so there were each of them had a minority position in the USA, but they were the three of them together. And I, I really actually had a deal to buy out the Financial News Network, which became a CNBC. That was thwarted by uh, Sid Scheinberg from Universal, who went in the moment sitting in the conference room signing the contract with Dow Jones to be my partner on uh, Financial News Network, he pulled out. Wow. It, was de- it was a devastating moment after having worked a year and a half to get it to uh, fruition. And so there there were other opportunities that I had. So when it came to sci-fi, I thought, I know sci-fi fans are loyal and they're vocal. They would be uh, good supporters of the sci-fi network coming into being. And I had negotiated the deal to buy the title sci-fi network from some people who had started it, people from Florida who had started it. And I was signing the contract to take them out because I didn't want any competition in the marketplace. John Malone at that time had a propensity to uh, bring up competitors or buy pitchers and competitors. I always wanted to take them out of the window. And I had the contract negotiated. They were in the room reading it one last time before signing it. I got a call from Paramount, who had Star Trek. You would think that they would love Sci-Fi Network. (laughs) I got, yeah. So Stan called me and he said, you know, I don't think this is really a big enough uh, idea for a network and all this sort of thing. Well, I learned something from my first experience of having a partner pull out. I said, well, it's just too bad, Stan, because we just signed the contract. So it's done. (laughs) And actually, I didn't know for sure they were going to sign it, but I didn't care at that point in time. Uh, you know, I just, I just was not going to be thwarted again. And that's how I picked up sci-fi and, and uh, developed it. So fast forward, you ultimately, USA Network, after you running it for 21 years, was sold for $4.5 billion. How did that whole deal come to be? Well, there have been the uh, companies that were in the ownership of USA at that point in time kept getting bought and sold and changed. And there were a lot of different people, um, uh, different companies out there. Uh, at the end of the day, at the Universal challenged a provision in the contract with Viacom, uh, which had been you know, after we had first had the, the people from Madison Square Garden and then Paramount, and so this became Viacom Park, and they won a contract. So they got control of USA at that point in time, turned around, 
That was Edgar Bronfer Jr. People were astounded that he could win a lawsuit against Viacom at the time. Uh, and it turned around the next day and sold it to Barry Diller. So that's how it came about. Uh, there was uh, nothing I could do about that. I wanted to buy the company. It was not his choice. Uh, his choice was to sell it to Barry Diller, so he did. And that sort of ended you know, my association with USA Network, which came shortly thereafter. So that's how it goes in the world of business. And uh, I went on you know, to do many other things after that. Well, we're glad you did, even though probably at that moment, it didn't seem like the path you wanted to take. I would say for women in business, it was a great moment because at that time, after selling USA Networks, you pivoted, you were asked to chair the National Women's Business Council by President Clinton. And from there on, you have been an incredible proponent for women's entrepreneurship, founding first Springboard Enterprises. So can you tell us a little bit about Springboard Enterprises, its mission, and how does it work? At that time, it was late uh, into 1998, 1999. There was so much money pouring over the transom in venture capital. And I didn't really know that much about the venture capital market, but I saw all this capital. None of it existed uh, when I started Madison Square Garden Sports and KBUSA. So I thought to myself, where are the women? I looked around. There were no, like, couldn't find women, maybe five, um, that, you know, were in the market for venture capital. And I thought, why not? What, what's happening here? We decided we had to go find the women. We had to go out and see if they actually existed uh, so that, you know, we thought they were ready for equity investment, like venture investment. And we bid a call out. It was just a handful of us who just called out to our various networks. And we got 350 applications and we were overwhelmed. We ultimately selected 26 of those companies to go through our first accelerator boot camp. And they presented in January of, of 2000. The amazing, amazing thing is that 22 of the 26 of them got funded. Wow. And we've been doing that ever since. A lot of times people think of women's entrepreneurship. Well, first of all, we do know that women have trouble accessing capital, and that has been something that's plagued uh, women entrepreneurs. But we also know that people think about women's businesses often as small. What's your reaction to that? Oh, it's like fingernails on the blackboard. <laughs> I cannot stand the word small and women in the same sentence. It is, a, it, it is just a monkey on the backs of women that they've had to carry around for so long. And we are about women building companies to scale and sustainability. We are about going big. We are about creating wealth for women by their own you know, work and product that they're delivering into the marketplace. That's what's really important. We need women to think big because we are able to do this. I know after building a company uh, to a four and a half billion dollar uh, value that women can do this. You know, it's not impossible. But what women need and what we are providing to women is the ecosystem that is supportive. I saw that in the first year of Springboard Enterprises. It wasn't just entrepreneurs and funders investors. It was the whole ecosystem. It was the lawyers, the accountants, the business partners, the mentors. It was everybody that you needed in the ecosystem. That's what we built at Springboard Enterprises. And that's what's so important to the entrepreneurs. So many times women have come to our accelerator program. And in the first day, they are like, oh my God, I have never been in a room with so many bright women who are willing to share their experiences for my benefit. 
I'm overwhelmed with this. That's the important thing. Another thing that you've done, which I find amazing, because I think you just very well dispelled the myth that women businesses are small. That next layer of capital, as they move into growth and expansion capital, has also been hard for women to get to. Is that why you created Springboard Growth Capital? Well, my two partners and I that are in Springboard Growth Capital uh, are investing in growth stage companies, generally speaking, in, in, and it's targeted in the digital consumer space. Uh, and largely, we're looking for the growth capital level uh, of companies that are raising $20 million and up. We're targeting that so that the capital in the growth stage is there to continue to build and get to profitability and get to value for either a M&A sale to a, a strategic or an IPO. So that's where we are investing capital at Growth Capital to bring companies up the growth curve, which is very important. You may not know this intuitively, but when we started Springboard Enterprises, uh, only about 1% of the angel investors were women. Today, it's about 28% of the angel investors are women. So capital is around at the early stage levels, and a lot of women are investing in women-led companies. There is capital there, and it can be accessed. But getting up into the next stages of institutional capital and then getting up the stack, what I call up the stack, Later on, as they are growing, it's really important to see that capital come in. That's where Springboard Growth Capital is focused. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. The first company that Springboard Growth Capital invested in was The Real Real in 2016. The Real Real is the leading company in consignment of uh, luxury goods. And we subsequently invested in, we did four rounds of investment in The Real Real between 2016 and 2018, it went public as an IPO in June of 2019. So it's now been a public company for little over a year. It's uh, an amazing story of someone looking at a disaggregated marketplace, little consignment shops and neighborhoods in different cities and saying, "I I could make this a much bigger business. And that was Julie Wainwright. Julie is a an alum of Springboard. She did come through in 2008 with a different company, but decided that wasn't the right way for her to go. She launched this company subsequently and has taken it public. So it's one of those great stories of entrepreneurs and women who see a marketplace and can act on it. And I've had to go through and her, she would tell you that it was very hard to raise capital in the early days because guys who comprise uh, over 90% of the, or until recently, over 90% of the investors just didn't get it. They didn't, right. they didn't want anything to do with uh, consignment. That didn't get why it would be a very good market for them. And of course, the luxury good market is, is important. We need more women investors. We need more women on the investing side. That, that will change uh, the equation because when a woman is in the investing team at a venture capital company, that company is 70% more likely to invest behind a woman entrepreneur than a firm that has no women in its investing team. It's a really stark uh, realization that we need more women on the investing side. Makes so much sense, right? Because, you know, women have a perspective <laughs> that uh, they mm-hmm. need to share. And, and I'm a customer of the real, real. I would have totally invested in that. One thing that you had also mentioned more on the individual investor side is that we need more women investing more generally, not just in venture capital, but we need more women putting their money to work 
Can you talk to us a little bit about the trend of what women control in terms of wealth and how much they invest? Well, it's such a large figure of the amount of uh, capital that women have control of today in the United States, $22 trillion. $22 trillion. Amazing. And it comes from family wealth. It comes from maybe husband's wealth or partner's wealth and also earned wealth with women who are uh, building companies of size and scale. So it comes from different sources, uh, but that is a movement that is going to increase over time because of women living longer than men, generally speaking, in the environment, which has challenges on the other end of how much women have saved, but actually building wealth, the wealth is even going to accumulate larger. So how do you access that is, is the real question. And what we need to see are, let's say, for example, family offices, which are becoming a bigger source of capital, not only for women entrepreneurs, but for men entrepreneurs as well. And particularly in companies that have the values, the same value structure, the same value focus that they have. They're not only putting their money in philanthropy, they're putting their money behind and investing in companies that meet the same value structure. We need to see more of that happening because women actually do have access and control of a tremendous amount of wealth in this country. We need to have them feel comfortable about investing decisions. So that is going to take education, and I think it's an important one. And I think our entrepreneurs at Springboard are learning the value of investing in other companies that are coming behind them. That's really important. Well, Kay, we are so grateful for everything you are doing, have done, and continue to do for the overall communications business, but clearly for women entrepreneurs, you're unleashing a whole nother generation of great companies, and we look forward to seeing what Springboard Enterprises continues to do. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to join you today. Thanks so much, Kim. I want to thank Kay for sharing her incredible experience and insight. Three pieces of advice really had an impact on me. First, follow your instincts and your vision. As an undergraduate, Kay heard a lecture by science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. It sparked a lifelong interest in satellites that she says, quote, wouldn't let her go. That interest allowed her to see and seize all the untapped possibilities that cable TV could offer. Second, ask why not. In the early days of TV sports, sports were only on the weekends. Kay asked the question, why not every night? and the rest is TV history. Finally, think big about your company. While entrepreneurship certainly has its ups and downs, and people often love to characterize women's businesses as, quote, small, Kay's career shows us what happens when you think big. Kay thought big about satellite technology. She put her ideas to the test. Now Kay is encouraging other women entrepreneurs to think big about their own businesses through Springboard Enterprises and Springboard Growth Capital. To learn more, go to springboardenterprises.org. Made by Women is brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.